Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the crisis in the Arab world. It will pose the question, particularly to the US, but also to other Western powers, how much democracy can you stand? The latest efforts to resolve Europe's debt crisis. The pact for competitiveness is not really, frankly, something that the markets are particularly concerned at. What they're worried about is Portugal, Spain, Italy. Is the EU coming up with new tools, new ways to shore up these economies? And the row over America's budget deficit. We owe the American people a government that lives within its means while still investing in our future, in areas like education, innovation, and infrastructure that will help us attract new jobs and businesses to our shores. First to Egypt and the effect its anti-government protests are having on surrounding countries in the Arab world. Protests have now spread to Bahrain, to Libya, to Yemen, to Iraq, Iran and Jordan, with the situation in the Gulf state of Bahrain particularly severe. Joining me in the studio to discuss the situation is David Gardner, the FT's international affairs editor, and on the line from Cairo we've got Michael Peel, the FT's Middle East correspondent. David, first, events in Bahrain are unfolding as we speak. They look pretty out of control. What's your assessment of what's going on? I personally think that the ruling al-Khalifa family, which, as you know, is a Sunni dynasty, originally from the Nejd in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi, the al-Saud heartland, in fact, a Sunni dynasty ruling over a population which is two-thirds majority Shia, is in danger of turning what should be a problem soluble by reforms into a revolution. In other words, a reformist situation into a revolutionary one. And that moment may have been passed the other night when they launched this brutal crackdown on the protest camp in the Pearl Roundabout Stroke Square. And furthermore, the forces that they used to do it were essentially alien to the Bahrainis. These are the security services that they employ and import from places like the Baluch tribal areas, Syrian policemen, Jordanian policemen, and so on and so forth. Now, if they don't pull back from that into the prior arena, and don't forget that these are demands that have been on the table in Bahrain for nearly 30 years, of a constitutional monarchy, a strengthened parliament, a fairer share of the national pie, all those things, then their own position eventually comes into question, and that, that's when it gets seriously difficult. Obviously, events in Egypt were a pretty sharp foreign policy dilemma for the United States between the values that it says it promotes, democracy and, and national security interests and stability, but Bahrain even more, I would have thought, because they've got the, the US Fifth Fleet based there. Well, absolutely. It will pose the question, particularly to the US, but also to other Western powers, European powers, how much democracy can you stand? particularly since the people who are really trying to stiffen the Bahraini ruling family's spine, as they've done before, are the Saudis. 
Now, this is all talked up in terms of the threat from Iran. And and, and in fact, it's really that there isn't any evidence and, and never has been of serious Iranian influence behind Bahraini unrest, not a shred. What there is in both Bahrain and Saudi Arabia is a fear of the Shia. And what the Saudis fear above all is that if Shia get more power in Bahrain than their own Shia across the causeway in Eastern Province, which is where all the main oil fields are, will be emboldened to seek a fairer share of the Saudi national pie. Now, all of which presents an enormous problem diplomatically and, and, and strategically for the US, which, of course, is the principal ally of the principal Gulf power, Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, uh, of course, Bahrain's not the only country that's experiencing unrest. There are also uh, reports of, of really quite serious upheaval in, in Libya. Michael, you're just uh, just across the border in, in Egypt. How much do we know about what's happening inside Libya? Is it a real threat to Colonel Gaddafi? Well, the answer is we know all too little um, because it's a very difficult country for foreigners to enter. So people have been trying to scramble together a picture based on fragments of information that have been emerging from the country. It seems clear that, that there's been violence. Human Rights Watch issued a press release yesterday claiming that, um, that 24 people had, had been killed. But it seems as if the regime is cracking down as ruthlessly as one would expect. Okay, and in this this rapid-fire tour of Middle Eastern trouble spots, can I now turn to Yemen? David, what's going on there? I mean, people seem to regard that regime as as very shaky. I think that's probably right. I think both both Gaddafi and Ali Abdullah Saleh regard this as a life-or-death struggle now, and that certainly appears to be Gaddafi's take to, above all, keep this tide from getting anywhere near Tripoli. Saleh's problem is is more complex because he already had a rumbling insurgency of sort of heterodox Shia, the the Zodi Shia in the north. He has a secession movement in the south. And he has a jihadi problem, principally the local franchise of Al-Qaeda, on top of which he's running out of both money and resources. And by resources, I don't mean just oil, but water. So the normal mix of bribes and batons, as it were, I mean, he's just left with the batons principally at the moment. If any of these forces gel together, he is in a very, very tricky corner. How much time do you give it before we know what's going to happen? Hard to tell. His modus operandi at the moment appears to be to negotiate partial deals, concessions, I won't stand again in 2013, etc. Nor will I try and impose in the Republican dynastic style of the region any relative or son of mine. But his main escape route at the moment appears to be to try and get a deal with the semi-loyal opposition, which he hopes will strengthen his hand to deal with the potentially lethal opposition, i.e. this insurgency in the north and a secession movement in the south, and anything that the jihadis can, any any waters that the jihadis can fish in. Finally, we mustn't forget Egypt is still, you know, the the most important country in the region, and it's just been through this this incredible revolution. Michael, you're in Cairo. Any signs of this much spoken of orderly transition to democracy? Today's 
celebration stroke protest in Tahrir Square may um, reveal something of this. I mean, clearly uh, w- what has happened in Egypt has been a, a political revolution of enormous significance, the overthrow of a leader, but not really a social revolution in, in the sense that the army is in, in power and there haven't been great radical changes announced since uh, Mr. Mubarak stepped down. Now, the question is to what extent will people accept that as you know the price of of turmoil. This week, um, there have been waves of strikes um, around the country. I, I was in uh, Mohalla, an industrial city in, in the Nile Delta, a couple of days ago, and there was a, a big protest at one of the biggest textile factories there. And people very much feeling a sort of uh, assertiveness flowing from the overthrow of Mr. Mubarak to say, well, you know, this is about more than him. This is about you know our lives. And so um, it's not at all clear how the transitional rulers are going to deal with that. Um, Another question is corruption. In one sense, the authorities have been very active on corruption. They've issued asset freezing orders against various former ministers. But what they haven't done is, is gone after Mr. Mubarak or, or any of his immediate family and associates. And uh, you know, there's certainly people here who are starting to question that as, as, as the elephant in the room. You know, questions being raised: Has the army done a deal um, with the Mubaraks, whereby they will be be let go? Um, that uh, could become a theme as things unfold here. And it will be very interesting to see today what the tenor of this Tahrir Square gathering is in which build as a celebration. But will there also be protests, um, specific demands laid out? Michael Peel in Cairo, thank you very much. And David Gardner here in London, thank you also. Let's move on now to our second topic for today, the continuing discussions over how to solve Europe's debt crisis and increase the continent's economic competitiveness. Finance ministers met in Paris on Tuesday ahead of a vital summit in Brussels on March the 11th. They're trying to come up with some agreements on a number of proposals, including harmonising national budgets across European countries. Joining me now is Peter Spiegel, the FT's Brussels bureau chief. Now, Peter, there's a lot of talk about a new pact for competitiveness. The proposals in it sound really far-reaching. Could you just give us an idea of what they're talking about? Yes, they're very far-reaching, and they're also very German, to be honest with you. I mean, this was an idea hatched in Berlin by the Merkel government to basically impose German rules on the rest of the Eurozone. I mean, things like a debt break, which the Germans have in their constitution, which is if you reach a certain debt level, all of a sudden you have across-the-board cuts in in spending. Increasing pension ages. It's not something that particularly go over very well in France. Things like getting rid of the indexation of salaries to inflation. The Belgians do this. The Portuguese do this. It was a list of about six things that they came with and wanted to see all the Eurozone do. Thus far, it's gone over, frankly, very badly. I mean, first of all, they're, they're great partners in this, the French, have agreed that this is a good idea in, in concept, a pact for competitiveness, but everything they've listed in there, the substance of it, they're opposed to. Yet we were both talking to senior European officials this morning, and they seem very confident that it would go through. And yet, as you say, this stuff is highly controversial. How, how, how can that be? Well, this is, seems to be a bit of fig leafism, if that's a word. I mean, there will be a pact for competitiveness. I mean, I think we've decided that they're going to call something this and, and go through with it. Obviously, the details are yet to be decided. And frankly, in talking to people from various member states in Brussels, there is not a whole lot of support for anything really substantive in it. The other point that should be made is a lot of the things that they're talking about in here are already being called for in other bits of the the rescue, the, the efforts that the European Commission has been doing. So there's a lot of suspicion this is a bit of a political ploy by Merkel because she is going to have to step up 
and provide more German guarantees for future bailouts. That's part of this this new structure they're working on. Uh, there's a new thing called the European Stability Mechanism, and the Germans are basically have to double the size of their guarantees in case there's a bailout of Portugal or Spain or Italy. So she's got to go to the Bundestag and say, sorry, guys, sorry, German taxpayers, you're going to have to step up yet again. She wants to be able to have her pound of flesh that she can show we've gotten the Portuguese and the Belgians and the Italians to do X, Y, and Z. But from what you're saying, it sounds like she's not going to get a pound of flesh. She would be lucky to get a quarter pound of flesh. Well, exactly. And it, it, what this whole exercise now seems to be is what kind of window dressing can we put on this? Can we call it a pact for competitiveness, which frankly is a bit of a misleading nomer to begin with because it's more about austerity than competitiveness? And can we get enough commitments, soft commitments, that we in general agree with this principle as opposed to we will do this in the next five years? And how soft is that? And is it sellable to the German population? which has a series of very serious uh, elections coming up uh, in the next month or two. So it's, it's, it's a real tough one for her politically. Okay. Final question. Um, of course, all this sounds like typical abstract inside the Brussels beltway bargaining, but the background is a serious European sovereign debt crisis. Is there a danger that if they don't uh, get an agreement that seems credible, the markets will step in again and you'll have a, a further twist? The markets have already priced in, frankly, that they're going to get an agreement on quite a bit of this. The pact for competitiveness is not really, frankly, something that the markets are particularly concerned at because that's long-term fiscal and budgetary stability. What they're worried about is is Portugal, Spain, Italy. Is the EU coming up with new tools, new ways to shore up these economies? And the way things are looking now is because of German political resistance and, frankly, other northern countries, the the Dutch, the Finns, the Austrians, because of resistance in those countries, this deal that everyone was anticipating and priced into the market already may not happen. And if that happens... We're going to see another run on Portugal like we saw in Ireland, and it, the contagion could really catch fire. And that's the real danger they're facing in the next month or so. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Now, it's not just Europe that's struggling to control rising government debt. On Monday, President Obama announced his third annual budget. He talked of pay freezes for government workers and sharp reductions in spending. We owe the American people a government that lives within its means while still investing in our future in areas like education, innovation, and infrastructure that will help us attract new jobs and businesses to our shores. That was President Obama. Joining me now is the FT's common editor, James Crabtree. James, uh, the president presented his proposals as a really serious effort at deficit cutting, but in fact he's been very severely criticised for not doing enough. Is, is, is that fair? I think so. He proposed $1.1 trillion in budget cuts, which sounds like a lot, But most people seem to think that it's not enough to bring the American budget down to a sustainable level. What that allows is that the budget deficit will peak at about 11% of the size of the American economy next year and then fall down to under 5% in about five years' time. But the independent commission that he set up a few months ago said that the budget cutting needed to happen two or three times faster than that. So he's been criticized from both sides, both by centrist Democrats and by Republicans, for not doing enough quickly enough. And why isn't he doing enough? Is it simply that he's worried that ahead of the presidential election it would be a political error? I think that's probably mostly it, to be honest. Uh, To see what happened in the last week is actually quite a big change in the direction of policy, so we should give credit for that. Up until this point, they've been concentrating on trying to get the economy back into basically a good shape by investing in it, by rescuing it. And so this was the turn in economic policy. Uh, What 
critics are saying is that that turn hasn't come quickly or, or hard enough, but the president wants to be re-elected, and therefore he's trying to strike a middle ground between Republicans who are very keen to cut uh, quickly and indiscriminately and his own left Democratic wing that doesn't really want to cut anything, in particular uh, social spending on health and pensions. Now, will they find a compromise? Will they get a budget through? Because the Republicans who now control the House are being, as you say, very uh, tough, saying that there must be much sharper cuts in the deficit, and there's this looming question of whether they'll vote to increase America's capacity to borrow. So there are two questions there. They've got about three or four weeks now to figure out whether they can come to a deal which will not shut the government down. And the suspicion is that they will find that deal because the consequences of not having it are so dreadful. The deeper question is, will he hit even these limited targets? And that's much more difficult because some of the assumptions behind the figures rely on you know, the tax base will rise as the economy improves. So that's going to happen anyway. But the rest of them, a lot of them come from spending cuts. And those spending cuts have to go through the Congress. And it's very difficult to see how he's going to get support for some of these, because some of the programs will be defended by Democrats, and others of the cuts will be attacked by Republicans for not going far and fast enough. Behind this, even more complicatedly, Obama's budget does almost nothing about what causes most of America's fiscal problems, which are rising health care costs, the fact that people are living much longer, and the fact that their tax base is too low. So if you want to have real reform, you need to talk about entitlement programs for the old, for the sick, and you need to start raising taxes. And that's even more difficult in an American political system, which is at least partly broken. James Crabtree, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. So thanks to all our contributors and to you for listening. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.